What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. The motion is keep them off the streets and behind bars. Tough prison means a safer society. Behind that, of course, is the question, what's prison for? Now, my friend Michael Howard of Sacred Memory said that prison works. What he meant was that if offenders are locked up, they are not in a position to do any of us any harm. There are about 85,000 people in prison tonight in this country. As a proportion of our population, we lock up more than many, about 154 out of every 100,000. That is over twice the proportion of a country that we're going to hear about shortly, Norway. Does that mean we're a more criminal society, or do we just handle crime differently? We have more lifers in this country uh, than in the whole of Western Europe put together. But of course, they will all leave prison, most of them, nearly all of them will leave prison, and within a year, almost half of them will have been convicted of another crime. Does that mean that prison works? Locking somebody up is the state's ultimate sanction against the individual, and as Nelson Mandela and Churchill both said, you can tell a great deal about a society by the way that it treats those people it puts into prison. So first off, let's hear from the first speaker tonight, who is Dominic Lawson. He is speaking for the motion. He is the principal opinion columnist for the Sunday Times and the former editor of the Sunday Telegraph and the Spectator. He writes a weekly leader page column for the Daily Mail and a monthly column for Standpoint magazine. Would you please welcome Dominic Lawson. Dominic. Thank you very much. Um, keep them off the streets. It's a very, um, actually rather vulgar <laughs> title for a motion. Um, I don't really approve of it. Um, and also I noticed on the literature it referred to the bang up brigade. And this is really slightly tabloid language. And uh, you'll find that the speakers for the motion, I think I'm right in saying, Tony, aren't I, that, that we're not that sort of person. I mean, we're sophisticated middle-class people like you here in the audience. Um, And uh, yet the language is in a way appropriate because when you look at 
the way that newspapers cover this. Newspapers like The Guardian and The Times, in fact, although one is left-wing and the other is right-of-centre, both write leaders saying that there are too many people in prison for any good that it does us. And newspapers like The Sun, which obviously is right-of-centre, but also The Daily Mirror, which is left-of-centre, take a different view. They take the view that actually it's very important that many people are put in prison and that there are tough sentences. And you need to ask yourself, why is it that there is this division between the newspapers read by the intelligent middle classes and the newspapers read by people not of that background? And the reason is that crime, particularly violent crime, is largely a feature of deprived areas and poor areas. And the people who suffer from it are the poor and the deprived. People in this room do not suffer much from violent crime or crime at all. Where I live in Pimlico, it's very clear to me. I live in a nice address, middle-class address. It's not a problem where I am. Very near to where I am, very near, and I can see them, are what Americans call social housing. There is violent crime there. There are murders that take place there. The people living there suffer from it. Now, Jeremy, in fact, made the point, continuing his eternal debate with Michael Howard, that we incarcerate a very large number of people in this country, more than do our neighbours. This is actually not a relevant point. The significant point is how many people do we incarcerate relative to crime? That is the point. And in fact, Ireland, France, Spain, the Netherlands, Greece, Portugal, all incarcerate a higher proportion of convicts than Britain does. They also have lower crime rates. Now, the Commons Justice Committee, uh, about in 2010, asserted it was no longer necessary to jail so many people because, and I quote the report, household crime and violent crime have fallen by 46%, and 43% respectively since 1995, while the prison population has more than doubled. It would be comical, if it were not tragic, that the MPs are unable to see that the first of these facts might actually be a consequence of the second. And they don't. Now, this is not just a function of Britain. I mean, the same thing happened in America. There was the Zero Tolerance campaign, which changed New York from a city where you were, frankly, frightened to go out at night to one of the safest cities in the world, and certainly in America. Um, and we had this experience in this country where under one Tory chan- uh, Home Secretary, Ken Clark, the prison population was cut, crime went up. Under Michael Howard, star of Newsnight, um, the prison, prison sentences were toughened and crime fell. I mean, it's a, a, a mathematical correlation. And actually, we had a very interesting way of seeing this because around about the same time, well, a bit later under New Labour, there was devolution. And these policies were, if you like, uh, devolved to the countries, well, the nations of Northern Ireland, the nations of Scotland. And while in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Scotland increased its prison population and experienced a consequent fall in recorded offences, whereas in Northern Ireland, there was a sharp drop in prisoner numbers, and it was followed by a notable rise in crime. So I think, actually, there's no argument about this debate. I mean, it's, it's just a fact. I mean, you can, you can argue about whether you're happy about it, but it is a fact. Of course, in polite circles, it's not attractive to demand higher sentences for criminals. It's thought to be barbaric and, and worse 
populist. And of course, mere vicarious rage is very unattractive. And of course, those who want shorter sentences do so for the very best of reasons. They have an admirable intuitive sympathy for the underdog, which in their view is represented by the man you can see up there. And they find it difficult to understand that it's a similar sympathy for the underdog which inspires those of us who take the opposite view. For us, the underdogs are the victims of crime, both those which have taken place and those which will certainly happen when dangerous criminals are released early. And we saw a good example, again, it was in 2010, when there was a huge pressure on prison numbers, and the Justice Secretary, then Jack Straw, declared that he was having an early release scheme for prisoners, which meant shaving weeks off the sentences of about 80,000 convicted criminals. Now, it was abandoned quite rapidly, because within two years of its enactment, those released early had committed 1,500 further crimes, including several rapes and murders. So it was abandoned. Now, the argument of people like, I suppose, Ken Clark, who was always opposed to Michael Howard on this, was that rehabilitation is what is necessary. And it was somehow suggested that the idea of tough sentences and the idea of rehabilitation were somehow opposed to one another. But actually, it's absurd to talk about prison as being the opposite of rehabilitation because some of the most imaginative schemes of learning and training have been developed by prison governors. And indeed, the National Audit Office, a couple of years ago, did a report on this, and it was told by prison governors that it was precisely the fact that so many prisoners had had their sentences arbitrarily reduced to a matter of weeks, which made it all but impossible for them to find the time to address their offending behavior, as the phrase is, that is, to rehabilitate them. And I suspect, and I would in fact assert, that this may be one reason why the reoffending rate is much lower among prisoners who have served three years than it is among those who have served three months. And think about this. Those who have served three years are serious criminals because that, in effect, is a six-year sentence of which they serve half. So if those who have served three years are reoffending less than those who serve three months, it shows the effect that longer sentences have because those who are in for the shorter sentences will tend to be the less serious criminals. And again, I think this essentially proves the motion. Now, uh, I, in fact, oddly, I'm the president of the English Chess Federation, and we have an outreach program in the prison service. And it's an example of the thing which you can do in prison that you can't do with certain people outside prison because, without wishing to be facetious, you have a captive audience. And um, recently, uh, our, the manager of our chess in prisons went to HMP Full Sutton, which is a, a maximum security, a high-security prison housing some of the country's most dangerous criminals. And I had an amazing email from uh, Carl... Carl, who is the, um, I won't give his surname, who is our person who goes into prisons. And he said that he played a simultaneous display against all the prisoners. And he said, some are household names, and yes, I did get to face some in my display, an unusual experience, but chess won the day. But what he did afterwards was get a letter from someone at the prison who said it was absolutely extraordinary that it really excited all the prisoners and they were dedicating themselves to chess. And they, she said it was the best day she'd had in the prison service as someone who works there. And 
The interesting thing to me about this is this is something which you could not do outside the confines of a long prison sentence. Because actually what would motivate someone, if they thought they were coming out in a month or two months, why would they do this? Uh, And there's a very good example of John Healy, who I actually played, who was a uh, perennial prisoner, um, and he discovered chess in prison, and he was there for some years, and he came out, and he never committed another crime. And so what I'm saying is that we on this side of the motion, and addressing Jeremy's point about Churchill and how we treat our prisoners, we are not in favour of prisoners suffering. We are not in favor of privation. We are in favor of rehabilitation. We are in favor of using prison for them to benefit their lives. But ultimately, what we want to do is to protect the poorest and the most vulnerable. And if you want to protect the poorest and the most vulnerable in our society, you will vote for the motion. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dominic. Um, our second speaker, the first speaker against the motion, is the Director General of the Norwegian Correctional Service. She's a lawyer by profession, formerly head of the Penal Law Section in Norway's Department of Legislation in the Ministry of Justice, currently Vice President of the European Organization of Prison and Correctional Services. Please will you welcome Marianne Vollen. Thank you. Let me start by establishing that some inmates are very dangerous and must obviously be kept away from the community, maybe for life. But the vast majority of inmates are to be released at some point and will become someone's neighbor. So who would you like to have as your neighbor? The one that has been locked up with the purpose of tough treatment or the one that has been prepared for a law-abiding life after release. From my experience, respect rather than toughness is a more successful attitude for us at Correctional Service in the preparation for a safe release, and thus reduce re-offending. And that is what it is all about, reducing the terrible human and economical consequences which crime often causes. So the crucial question is, how do people change? Has the Norwegian Correctional Service a naive view on the world in general and crime specifically? I can disclose that I believe that the answer to these questions is no. I will illustrate my point by describing three important aspects in the Norwegian approach in the execution of sentences. The principle of normality, the import model, and the role of the prison staff. But first of all, bear in mind the fact that 60 to 70% of the inmates suffer from substance abuse, health problems, and poor educational and working skills. The principle of normality means that life in prison shall approximate as closely as possible life in the community. And the principle of normality supports a humane approach in the execution of sentences. The penalty shall be felt as a penalty but still being executed in a way that reduces the negative impact of being incarcerated. The normality concept is closely linked to the principle that deprivation of liberty is the actual penalty and that other rights are in behold. 
Inmates should be seen as citizens, with the same individual rights as other citizens, except the right to liberty. That is, for instance, with a right to access to society in terms of voting rights, media access, organizational rights, access to public services like health, school, social benefits, etc. The right to execute basic elements of a private life in terms of family life and religion. The principle of normality can also be a measure for a safer release, and that is the topic tonight. The smaller the difference between life inside and outside prison, the easier the transition from prison to freedom. The idea is that prison can be a training arena for the mastering of life skills. I've talked about rights, but duties are equally important. The prisoner should be responsible for making appointments with his employer, like asking for permission to go to the doctor and so on. The inmates should also pay bills, buy and prepare food, do their own laundry, and take responsibility for their own personal hygiene. In short, practicing in being a citizen responsible for his or her own life. It is the exceptions from and modifications of the principle of normality that need to be argued for, not the principle itself. A normal life inside the prison wall, where is the punishment, you might ask? Is this like a holiday resort with a lot of nice facilities? No way. The deprivation of liberty is a tough penalty. Let me tell you, I stay in a very nice hotel in London this night. But if I were to stay there for years and not decide when to leave, I definitely would have felt it as a punishment. Another important principle in the Norwegian approach and strongly connected to the principle of normality is the import model. Our aim is that everyone who is to be reintegrated in the Norwegian society after serving a sentence should have an offer of employment, education, suitable housing, some type of income, medical services, debt counselling and preferably a social network. The reintegration approach is based on a close cooperation between the correctional service, NGOs, and not least, the offender himself. We don't want to leave the released person at the prison gate with nothing else than a plastic bag in his hand. And we see now an acceptance of a joint responsibility for the inmates. Who owns the inmate? Previously, the attitude seemed to be that the correctional service had this role. Other public services experienced maybe a relaxing break when their clients were in prison. But reality is that the convicted person is society's property. And many public services could have a unique chance to get in touch with their clients when they serve a sentence. They are at hand, sober and drug-free, and probably more motivated than usual. This is the import model. We want the public service providers to be in the corrections. Prisons do not have their own staff delivering medical, educational, employment, social, clerical, and library service. These are important from the community, and there are many advantages with this. A better continuity in the deliverance of services. The offender will already have established contact during his time in prison. Involvement from the community with the prison system, more and better cross-connections, and an improvement of the image of prison and prisoners. The service in question will be equal with the one provided to other inhabitants in Norway. And someone from the outside looks us in the cards every day and contributes to a transparent correctional service. 
Finally, I would like to say a few words about the role of our prison staff. I asked earlier, how do people change? I believe that our prison staff, our agents of change, as I like to call them, can play a crucial part here. The prison officer has perhaps one of the most complex and demanding jobs in the society. He or she has to balance the control and help function towards the inmates. Acknowledging this complexity, we invest a lot in the education of the prison officers. They have to undergo a two-year education and training where the consciousness about ethics, values and attitudes play a key role. If you treat people with respect, they are more likely to respect themselves and other people. If you treat them as animals, they will behave like animals. Establishing a respectful relation to the inmates is also basic for the risk assessment and is paramount for the dynamic security of the prisons. I'm very proud of my staff. The around 50 prison facilities in Norway vary a lot in terms of building standards. Some date back to the 1850s and are almost <coughs> dilapidated. A few are brand new. But I expect and experience that my staff have the same attitudes and values all over the country, regardless of the outer standard of the facility. The building is merely a shell. The important thing is what you fill it with. To conclude, I strongly believe that the path to a safer society is not made out of tough sentences, but of wise sentences, with a content that prepares the prisoner to a healthy, normal, tax-paying and law-abiding life. Thank you. Right, our next speaker for the motion, the second speaker for the motion, is Theodore Dalrymple. He's a former prison doctor and psychiatrist, a regular columnist for The uh, Spectator, the author of many books, including Life at the Bottom, The World View That Makes the Underclass, and Our Culture, What's Left of It. Please welcome Theodore Dalrymple. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm very pleased to hear about uh, things in Norway, of course, and it seems almost a pity to confine their services uh, just to convicted criminals. Um, <laughs> I certainly uh, could think of quite a few people who would benefit uh, prophylactically, as it were. <laughs> Our politicians, for example, or... Uh, our financiers, and uh, definitely our estate agents. <laughs> but in this debate, we are not talking about Norway or even uh, utopia or paradise, and Britain is as far away from uh, Norway as Norway is from paradise. Even in Norway, things are not actually uh, perfect. It has twice the rate of violent crime as Spain and twice the amount of crime as Ireland, and uh, its so-called recidivism rate for those convicted of violence is 55% within five years. Actually, the reoffending rate, which is much more important, you should put the idea of recidivism out of your mind. What's, interest, what's important is the reoffending rate. 
is considerably higher. And this is because half of all the violent crimes that are reported are not solved by the police. And second, because there are always crimes not reported to the police. In fact, in Britain, the number of crimes not reported to the police is higher than the number that are reported to the police. And third, because in these statistics, a single uh, crime counts the same as 100 crimes if it's by the same person. So it's a binary system. If it counts as one uh, crime uh, if you've done 100. So it is probably safe to say that in Norway, those convicted of violence have between at least an 80% to 100% rate of reoffending. And indeed, of all criminals convicted in Norway, about half have been convicted at least once and probably uh, several times. But now let's turn to our own country, and I take it that this debate is mainly about England. And let me uh, uh, endorse the comment of my colleague, uh, Dominic Lawson, that we are not talking, when we talk about tough sentences, we're talking about the length of sentence and not bad treatment of prisoners. We're not trying to toughen them up. We're not arguing for harshness. And no one wants a society in which the only reason for behaving well is the fear of imprisonment. But I first became interested in this question when I worked in the kind of area where crime has an enormous impact on people's lives. The kind of area, and they're quite extensive, where old people are under a de facto curfew and where old men said, say that they don't know why they fought in the war because they have been imprisoned in their own homes not that they feel safe even in their homes. Many of my patients in the hospital were victims of crimes that they they had not reported. And one of the reasons that they said they didn't report them is that the perpetrator said, and this was something I heard over and over again, remember, I'll be walking the same streets as you in six weeks' time. Now, remember, I'll be walking the same streets as you in six years' time doesn't have the same ring or effect. One of my first patients in the hospital when I started working there uh, served in a a shop. Three young men came in. One jumped over the counter and started strangling her. And actually, she nearly fell unconscious, while the others laughed and filled their pockets uh, with goods. The, unusually, the police actually caught the three young men and gave them that most terrible of penalties, a warning. She never went back to work and was understandably embittered at the levity with which the British state took her danger and her distress. And I discovered that this was by no means unusual, um, very far from it. Not long ago, I spent six weeks in uh, Yeovil in Somerset, which my uh, sat-nav insisted on calling uh, you evil. (laughs) (laughs) And I uh, made a list of all the crimes reported in the weekly uh, newspaper. Uh, One young man was being tried for murder. One month before he took part in this murder, uh, he had come out of prison uh, uh, for a serious assault. In this crime, seven people bundled the victim in broad daylight in a housing estate, drove him to a rural area, stripped him naked, 
tied him up, beat him severely, and left him naked in the field where he died of exposure and of his injuries, which included a fractured skull and every single rib broken. And for having participated in this, the young man will serve four years in prison. This kind of sentencing is not only terrible in itself, but it exerts an inexorable downward pressure on sentences for other less serious but nevertheless serious uh, crimes. Well, after spending my morning in the hospital, I went next door to the prison, and there was much less violence in the prison than in the hospital. I would ask the prisoners in confidence what they had actually done, and they'd all told me that they'd done five to 20 times as much as they had ever uh, been charged with. And one said to me, and when I asked him whether he was going to stop being a burglar, he said, I'm a burglar. Burgling's what I do. Now, the average burglary in this, domestic burglary in this country costs a burglar two weeks in prison, if that. And the wonder really is, not that there are so many burglaries, which at the moment stand at only 700,000 a year, uh, but why there are not many more. And I used to look at the, the criminal records of the uh, prisoners. And uh, one I remember, this was admittedly an extreme example, he was fined £50 for his 57th conviction of burglary. Expunge your, the idea from your mind that prison doesn't work. It's easy to work out that hundreds of thousands and perhaps even millions of crimes are committed by people who are currently undergoing community sentences. In Scotland, between a fifth and a quarter of all crimes are committed by people just on bail. And the vast majority of them, those are guilty of their crimes and they have long uh, records. But there's good news as well as bad. And the first is that even in our crime-ridden society, uh, and particularly the crimes of which we're most afraid, the vast majority, or quite a large majority, are committed by a very small percentage of the population. Second, and this is a very good news, crime stops spontaneously by the age of 39. About 97 or 98% of people sent to prison in Britain have committed their crime before the age of 39. And after that, they just stop. Or, of course, they don't get caught, but I think they stop. The penological consequences, I think, should be obvious. Longer sentences would not necessarily mean a huge increase in the uh, prison population because longer sentences deter and because it is the same people coming back to prison over and over again. And I ask you to remember that the recidivism rate, which is actually, you have to treat it with caution, is lower the higher the sentence given. And I want you to remember, please remember, that the class of perpetrator is always much smaller than the class of victims, and that failure to uh, properly incapacitate and rehabilitate uh, perpetrators, at least in our society, is willingly to create victims, and mainly victims amongst the poor and the underprivileged and the vulnerable. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Theodore. Um, well, our final speaker is Erwin James. He's speaking against the motion. He's an author and Guardian columnist. He served 20 years of a life sentence for murder. While in prison, he gained an arts degree and began a career as a journalist. He's now a trustee of the Prison Reform Trust, a fellow of the RSA, and an honorary master of the Open University. Please welcome Erwin James. Thank you very much indeed for that warm welcome. It's very much appreciated. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. I did just have a think there as my esteemed colleagues were, were presenting their argument that whose shoes on this panel would I rather not be in tonight? And, uh, and I suddenly thought they're my shoes, you know. <laughs> they're, they're very uncomfortable shoes to be in sometimes, especially in the public arena. But I'm stuck in these shoes, and as long as I am, I'm going to do the best I can with the life I have left. And part of that is coming and sharing the knowledge I learned uh, through this extraordinary life journey, which included 20 years in prison, which I deserved. You know, I, no question about that. I needed to be taken away for a long time. My behavior and my dysfunctions had impacted terribly, outrageously, on society. And there's no question at all that I had to be removed from society. If the death penalty had been on the statute books, when I was convicted, I would have been executed. And sadly, when I look back, I know that I wouldn't have minded that much because I'd had such a uh, problematic, uh, painful, pain-causing life. And I was glad it was over when the judge sentenced me at the Old Bailey. I was glad it was finished. I, I deserved all that was coming to me. But I didn't really know about prison when I went in there. Uh, I'd had experiences in young offender prisons as a boy, 17-year-old and then an 18-year-old. They were gladiator schools. They were places where I learned to become more of a criminal than I already was. I became hardened and tough and angrier. And uh, my failings I had that were driving my criminality, they, 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 they weren't addressed in those places. You know, they w I should have had some sort of Intervention. It shouldn't have been a gladiator school. It shouldn't have been a place where the toughest and the hardest and the, the most vicious is respected in the prison culture. It should have been a place where my failings and my needs uh, as a, a struggling kid were helped, supported. I should, have, I should have been encouraged to become someone who could fit well into society. Instead, I... I got back out. I didn't enjoy being a criminal. I, it just seemed to be something that my, my life was so... Um, had the trajectory of a pinball bouncing around like so many people I met in prison. I'm not a flag waver for prisoners' rights. I've never been an apologist for crime or criminals. There's no excuse for crime in my eyes. You know, we, we think about criminals as the other. But actually, when I was in jail... I found so many people that, were, that had similar life experiences to me. They, they weren't educated. They had been through the care system. They had some sort of abuse in their lives. And uh, that was never, uh, never, to me, was never a reason for condoning or accepting criminality just because they'd had, like me, problematic lives. There's no excuse for crime. But it seemed relevant to me that so many people I met in there had the similar dysfunctions to me. And the, the, the prison experience 
um, was very reducing. It was debilitating. It was corrosive. And the, the, the prison landing life is uh, brutal. Uh, and I was in prison eight, my first eight years in prison. I, had a, I was in a cell with a table, a chair, a bed, and a bucket for my toilet under the bed. And um, I was always reading great journalists who were writing about the holiday camp that I was living in. And I just think, I, I deserve to be here, but it's not a holiday camp. Uh, I remember Michael Howard talking about prison works and saying he was going to make prisons austere. And I thought, well, what are they going to take away? My chair, my table, my bucket for my toilet? What else can they take from me? You know. And when you're in prison, it is frustrating when you, you, you see that the public don't understand what the prison experience is. You're being fed disingenuous misinformation so often by the media, by politicians. We've had it this week in the press, you know, some guy convicted of murder has, he's got some skill in painting, he's painting a mural on the wall of Manchester prison, somebody's snitched to the sun and it's on the front page, Coronation Street, he, he, he painted a picture of the Rover's Return, the Coronation Street set on, the, on one of the walls and the landings to liven it up and the sun Coronation Street because it's a, a convicted murderer who's done this and it's the front page of the paper. Even today, the front page of the Sun is the Yorkshire Ripper planning his funeral. Last week, it was the, the Yorkshire Ripper eating chocolate. He's enjoying chocolate, you know. This is the sort of prison stories we get fed. And we, we, last year, we had the most deaths in our prison than we've had since records began. There were 83 self-inflicted deaths. There were over 100 deaths by natural causes. There were four prisoner-on-prisoner killings. There were 12 unexplained deaths. That always makes me smile wryly when I hear about unexplained deaths in prison. There's a lot of death in prison. But the fact is, as Marianne said earlier on, most of the people who are in our prisons will be released one day. They're going to be somebody's neighbor. 85,000 people in jail. There's around about 70 to 80,000 people a year released, determinate sentences, uh, descendants people, released from our prisons every year. And almost a half of those re-offend within a very short time, within 12 months. You go to two years and it's about 70%, 90% for young offenders. It costs on average £36,000 a year to keep one prisoner in a cell. That doesn't include health care or education, other services. That's just to keep them in that cell. For a, a secure children's home, you know, criminal children, we put them in secure training centres. That's £209,000 a year. And for young offenders, it's around about £160,000 a year for people under 18. It's a massive investment that we make in our prison system. £4 billion we spend on our prisons and probation. £2 billion on, on prisons, although we're skimming that. We, we're, we're reducing the costs in our prisons by getting rid of staff, although that's caused a panic. They're now trying to recruit more staff because they've got rid of too many. They got rid of a third over the past three years. They reduced the prison staff by, by a third, and uh, it meant more bang-up, less creative uh, rehabilitative activities. And we've lost our way with our prisons. Our prison system uh, and, our, and our criminal justice system, our prisons are important. They're, they're, a prison is a valuable community resource. We, we can't just keep banging people up for longer and longer and making sentences tougher and not thinking about what it is we're doing. We deserve a prison system that can give us a sense that we can have some pride in what it is we're doing with our prison system. Constantly, we, we're, we're ashamed of our prison system. You know, suicides and deaths. Last year, there were more uh, prisoner-on-prisoner prisoner assaults than there's ever been in our prisons. More prisoner-on-staff assaults because we're not doing anything creative 
or intelligent with them. We're banging them up. No staff keep them in their cells. We, we, we give them televisions a few years ago, and then the Justice Secretary decided they couldn't watch daytime TV because people outside don't want prisoners inside lying on their beds and watching day t- daytime TV. And I agree with that. I don't want them lying there watching television. I want learning work skills, educating themselves, addressing their failings. We don't do that because we don't care about our prisons. They, they get away with it. They, you know, the, the, the politicians and the, and the media, uh, they get away with undermining this really valuable community resource that we have. We, we don't need to keep banging people up for longer. We need to use the time that they're there in an intervening, creative, um, life-changing way. Most people I met in jail, I met everybody, every prisoner, every offender you could imagine, I met in jail. Every type of offender. And I don't owe them anything. I don't want to see them again, those people. I'm glad I've left them behind. But I know in my heart that most of them had the desire to change. But the need, their needs, for, for some of them, the needs and the, the failings were, t- were too deep-rooted and there were just not enough resources to accommodate what they needed. But I'll, I'll leave you with this. You know, only... We're talking about lengthening prison sentences, our colleagues across the way there. We, we have 80% of female prisoners are not in there for violent or sexual offences. 70% of male prisoners are not in there for sexual or violent offences. But we want to... We don't like criminals. Nobody likes criminals. They don't like criminals in Norway. But they use their prisons effectively. When criminals hurt us, we want to hurt them. All the, I've had a lot of experience with criminal justice. I've been on the receiving end of it since I was this big. And all the years through it, I never met anyone who was made better by hurting them. Thank you very much. Uh, right, we're going to talk among ourselves for a, for a few moments and then we're going to have questions from the floor. But before we do that, I'll give you the results of the vote as it was uh, when people came in before they heard the arguments that have already been expressed. So before the debate, for the motion, which you can see up here, there were 21%. Against the motion were 52%. And 27% of people didn't know. In the meantime, do you choose to commit a crime? Unless you can plead diminished responsibility or something. Well, criminal action is a choice, isn't it? Well, almost by definition, because you must have mens rea, which is the capacity to choose. Uh, What do you think? Well, I remember a prison officer saying to me, don't complain about the food, you've made a choice. You chose to come here because I chose to commit a crime. But... When you make choices in life, you, to make good choices, you need to be in a good place in, in your lives. You know, we make choices every day. We make decisions. And if, you, if you're living on the streets and you're an alcoholic or you're a drug addict or you're living, you know, you have mental health problems. So many people in our jails have mental health, serious mental health issues. And I couldn't, I used to scratch my head when the officer said to me, you made your choice. I couldn't remember making that choice to come to prison. But of course, what he meant was I chose to commit crime. Committing crime is not really a, it's not a rational thing to do. It's, it's, it, it might seem at the time um, an element, that, an action that you can do to survive a difficult situation, maybe. 
Uh, people commit crimes for all, all sorts of reasons. A psychologist told me once that everyone has a little bit of criminal in them. And, um, the, but the criminal, the pe- people that get convicted and do terrible crimes, it, it, it's got out of hand, this thing. We all, we all have a little bit of violin, as she said. And, um, you know, why anybody commits crime, I don't know. I just know that most of the people I met in there, I didn't meet people in prison who were rejoicing at being criminals and being unhappy people, you know, especially on the long-term wings where you had people, 50 or 60 people serving life imprisonment for murder. The, 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 the misery and the remorse and the guilt and the shame, and Theodore will no doubt disagree with me because he met them in his private office and they told him different things, but my experience was that it was a miserable place and there weren't people there enjoying being criminals and they, the people who wanted to change themselves. It's not about treatment. It's not about treatment. You can't change someone, Jeremy. You know, you, you can't actually rehabilitate anyone. They have to want to change their lives, and we've got to provide an environment where they can do that. If we want a safer society. What do you think of this argument, Dominic? Well, I think um, it, when Irwin said he never met anyone who was made better by being in prison, I kind of feel, even if that were true, it's completely irrelevant The primary purpose of prison, actually, as Theodore says, is not to treat people. It is for crimes to be expiated and for victims to feel that the state is taking cognizance of their pain and misery. And the examples that Theodore gave show that the state is failing in looking after victims. And I'd, I mean, just to make it, uh, an, uh, an example to, to, to show what I mean. Suppose someone committed a rape, a violent rape. And suppose afterwards that that person was full of remorse, absolutely full of remorse, that it was a terrible thing to have done, and convinced psychiatrists that he would never do such a thing again. Would you send him to prison? You would. You would because of the feelings of the woman who'd been raped that she felt that her pain had been addressed because crimes are not crimes against society. It's a very convenient form of words. There are no crimes against society. There are crimes against individuals. It's an act of extreme violence in many cases by one individual against another, the exercise of absolute power by a stronger person against a weaker person. And it's the state who has to protect the weak. And if if, if no prisoner is made better by prison, I don't care. You see, when we don't care, then we're not thinking about future victims of the people coming out of prison. All these 70 or 80,000 people a year who are coming out of our jails, they, almost half of them are going to reoffend within 12 months. And that's a hell of a lot of victims that we're not taking account of. We're, we're not respecting or caring about what happens after prison. You know, I'm all, I'm all for you commit a crime, you hurt someone, you go to jail. I, I get so annoyed when I see somebody who's committed a, you know, assault or something and a judge gives them a sentence that doesn't include imprisonment. I think if you harm someone in any, in any sort of way and, and assault, you, you've got to go to jail. But I think while you're in there, there's got to be some constructive purpose to your imprisonment. You can't just go in there and be banged up and, and lie in a cell smelling your cellmate for six months or a year or a couple of years. It's just pointless, you know. Sentences don't need to be overly long. I always found that sentences were either too short, because a few weeks in prison is pointless, or too long. But Owen, it's not pointless to the victim. It may be pointless to the criminal. 
It's not pointless to the victim. Well, a, f- a few weeks... OK, I, I, t- I, I totally take that on board, that, you know, if vic- you're a victim of crime, you want to see some punishment, you want to see some redress. But, but six weeks in prison, is, it, it doesn't achieve anything. Does that really satisfy the victim? I'm not sure that it would, you know. I think probably a longer sentence might give some satisfaction. But you've, we've got well, to have that, some that is exactly what we're saying, of course. That's promotion. <laughs> no, and, no, no, uh, no and, I, I'm saying that we don't need to be banging all these people up for longer. In some cases, a short prison sentence is, is ridiculous. We shouldn't be, you know, if, if it's a... People, we've got women in whose, whose children have played truant at school. We, we imprison them. We, we've got people who dodge their television license. We imprison them. We've got people who do really relatively misdemeanors, and we imprison them. People who take the points of the of, of, uh, driving license points when their partner sort of <laughs> gets caught, and you know, we, we, we put them in prison. Why do we do that with those people? Now, surely the people who were, who were the victims there, you know. But I, but I totally agree that the victim deserves redress. But potential victims of the future of these people coming out of prison, they also deserve respect. And, we, and they're only going to get it if we take our prison experience Marianne, seriously. Marianne, do you want to have a quick word on this before we take some points? Yes, please. Um, I think, as a head of service, um, I have, my obligation is twofold. Of course, it is to, um, to execute the sentence and to uh, make sure that... Um, uh, the public is safe, but uh, I also have to take into account the bigger picture, the safety in the future. So I wouldn't do my job if I didn't try, and it's, I wouldn't call it rehabilitation. Um, I think it is changing agents, re- because sometimes in life we need uh, guidance before um, making choices. And, okay, we know they have made a choice of doing something uh, criminal when they come to us but we need to make sure that they don't choose to do that again and that is what we can do something with and that's why I really uh, stress this point. Right. Um, yes madam. Uh, I wonder do we happen to know about any relatively efficient country in the world that keeps uh, uh, correct statistics which country in the world has the lowest crime rate? I'm afraid I can't uh, tell you that. Um, Probably Monaco, I should think. (laughs) (laughs) Does anybody know which country in the world has the lowest crime rate? No. Yes, let's let's hear from up there. Um, Sorry, yeah, no, I was just... uh, What would you say to the statement that um, maybe the prisoners are the victims because the society has let them down and that actually if we supported the needs, the root cause, the the reason why people commit these crimes... Um, the disenfranchisement of youth actually ends up making them commit crimes and then you put them in a prison system it's not really seeming like a system that's solution based or, I think or looking you've at the rung long-term. Theodore Dalrymple's bell so you better get, get going I'll be brief uh, I think you must um, distinguish if I may talk in medical terms between the primary and secondary Uh, prevention of crime. The primary uh, prevention of crime is uh, stopping people becoming criminals or not allowing them to become criminals, not encouraging them to become criminals in the first place. And I must say that uh, I'm appalled by much in our society. Much of our society is like a prison without any warders, actually. Uh, But it's different. Secondary prevention is different. 
It's the prevention of... Uh, it, uh, it's what you do with criminals once they have uh, become uh, criminal. And these are two different problems, although my belief is that... Uh, uh, stronger sentences actually does deter. And there was a very good example in the city in which I worked. There was an epidemic in the 1980s of people um, um, uh, robbing telephone boxes for the money, of course. Uh, and uh, the recorder of the city said, from now on, everyone who does that gets three years. And it stopped immediately. Now, no doubt, those people went on to do something else which didn't attract uh, sentences of that nature. But nevertheless, it does show that sentences do affect uh, people's behaviour, their knowledge of sentences. OK. I'm really sorry. We're under pretty tight time constraints here. So should we go on to the closing summing up speeches, uh, which will be done in reverse order to the way the order in which they were done first off? So... We're going to hear that first now from Erwin James, who will speak for a couple of minutes, summing up his position. You don't have to stand up. You can just... Thank you're you. among friends. You Thank know. you very much. That's very kind. Thank you very much. Well, it's a, I've been thinking about this argument as I've been listening to my colleagues across the way, and it's quite clear to me that they offer um, pessimism. We offer hope. They offer cynicism. We offer optimism. We have to be optimistic about how we use our prisons. We already have people in prison serving long, long sentences. The average life sentence in 1979, the average time that a lifer spent in prison was nine years. It doesn't seem right to me even that that was the case, but it was. Now it's 18 or 19 years. Every lifer gets 99 years. And if they get out, they don't die in there, and they survive the experience... Uh, most of them will get out at some stage. We already have a lot of people in our prisons serving a long, long time. We don't need to put more people in prison for longer. We need to start thinking about our prisons in an intelligent and creative, creative way. My colleagues across the way, they're, they're appealing to your anger and your disgust and your outrage about crime, and you're entitled to feel those feelings. But we have to try and be dispassionate when it comes to crime and punishment and try and do what the best thing is for the safety of society and it's not banging more people up for longer. Thank um, you very much. Thank you. Theodore. Well, if we're harsh and uh, very punitive, I could say that that last speech was sentimental because actually what we're trying to do is reduce the amount of crime in this country. And I repeat yet again that the principal victims of crime are the poorest and most deprived people in this country. And I work year after year, day after day, I heard stories of people who had been victimized with absolute impunity. And if you don't believe me, go and live in some of the areas like the areas in which I worked. So I think we have got to get in our minds that the purpose of the criminal justice system is not only to rehabilitate or even principally to rehabilitate prisoners, though, of course, any sensible and humane person wants to do that. But the evidence is 
that if you imprison people for longer, their recidivism rate goes down, and I think the evidence suggests that we should be doing that more, not for the sake of, uh, of gratifying our, um, our feelings of revenge, but to protect people. And I ask you to think carefully about the rate of recidivism because the rate of recidivism is not relevant actually to this debate because you could have a high recidivism rate and a low crime rate and you could have a high uh, crime rate with a low recidivism rate. Thank you, Theodore. Now, Marianne Vollen. Thank you. It's a long time since the Vikings were here. And uh, I, I do not intend to, to use any Viking methods uh, uh, concerning telling you how to do things. That, of course, far beyond my competence. But it seems to me, just from the outside in a way, that um, out of discussion, we have to, in a way, uh, divide between the sentencing as such and then, again, what do we do while people are sentenced. And, of course, that's... On the last part, that's where I come in. But on the first parts, I just want to mention that we have had some service um, because uh, we tend to say that public in general, people want harsher sentences. But if you really ask people um, and you, you present for them individual cases, um, the case isn't quite so. And also that um, is in line with my experience as a judge previously in the Court of Appeal. The lay judges very often um, voted for um, more lenient sentences. So that's just a, a small comment from, from the outside. But when it comes to where I have a role to play, when it comes to the um, execution of the sentences, I simply um, very strongly feel that I have an obligation to at least try to motivate to change. Uh, rehabilitation, I don't want to use that word in particular, but try to motivate to change in order to invest in future safety. Thank you. Mary, thank you. <laughs> and finally, Dominic. Uh, well, I'd just like to say that alternatives have been tried. And uh, there was a thing called the Intensive Supervision and Surveillance Program, which was designed to try and keep young people out of prison teenagers. And the final report was published in 2005, and the Home Office report said that it had not ensured public protection, it had not had a positive effect on offenders' attitude, it had not afforded proper supervision, it had not improved offenders' life chances or, or provided strong boundaries, not brought structure into young offenders' life, lives, and not separated offenders from damaging environments or peers. And the Reoffending rate, as known, was 91%. 91% known reoffending. Could have been, in other words, it was total. Now, this was a, a, a well meaning attempt to find an alternative to prison for relatively young criminals, and it did not work and it was abandoned. We are not in this position having failed to consider the alternatives. There has been a lot of idealism of the sort that Irwin wants, and it has been it has resulted, I'm afraid, in more pain for the public and no improvement in the lives of the offenders. So I, I would ask you to vote for the motion. Right. Thank you, Dominic. 
we've now got the uh, results of the vote. You'll recall that uh, before the arguments have been heard, there were 21% in favour of the motion, 52% against, and 27% didn't know. Well, the don't knows have collapsed to 1%. <laughs> Identify yourselves at once. Um, so that's good. Uh, and the, those in favour of the motion... The figure was 21%, it's increased to 42%, and those against the motion, that figure has also increased from 52% to 57%. So we both won. Yes. <laughs> it's a solution which would delight the Norwegian penal system. <laughs> Everyone wins. So, look, on your behalf, if I may, uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I just thank our four contributors this evening? It's been great fun and very interesting, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>